Well, good evening. I'm excited about tonight. This is the start of VBS, and so I know downstairs there's a, a lot of good teaching going on. Uh, kids are having a good time, and they are uh, learning, they're growing, they are enjoying themselves, and they are doing all of that at church. And I think that those are some of the types of things that can uh, influence attitudes towards church. You can associate church with positive things, and I think those are the types of things that can change lives for many years. So I'm excited about that. Um, also, I want to mention something else I'm excited about, which is a reminder about Wednesday night. We're having our summer series, and the speaker for this week is someone I've known for a long time. He's coming from a little bit farther away. He's coming from Little Rock, Arkansas. His name is Chuck Monan. Uh, he's someone who I have enjoyed listening to for years. Uh, I know him uh, pretty well. He's someone uh, that uh, it has been, I've looked up to him in my ministry, so I'm really glad to have him here, and I want to encourage you, if you're able to come, be sure and come to this one. This is going to be a really good one. Uh, I'm confident he'll do an excellent job, and his topic is extremely important and relevant. Uh, His topic deals with kind of understanding our culture and where things are and how we can relate to that while maintaining biblical truth, while maintaining uh, a strong conviction in the Word of God ways that we can reach our culture and uh, and, uh, understand our culture a little bit better. So I think it's very pertinent, and I think he'll do an excellent job. So Uh, be sure and try and prioritize that uh, and come if you possibly can. Uh, Our lesson tonight is going to come from Daniel chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 10, uh, and that's where we're going to be. And one of the reasons I chose uh, this passage to speak on is because I think it's a fascinating passage. And it also is a passage that connects to a couple of things that were discussed earlier today. Uh, One of them is the idea of prayer and fasting. Um, You'll you'll see some of that uh, pop up in this passage, and that'll be kind of interesting uh, paralleled with what we spoke about this morning, but also in our Bible class this morning, we spent a good amount of time talking about uh, demons and uh, the spiritual forces of wickedness and uh, the unseen realm, as it is sometimes called. And if you're looking for passages that have some really fascinating information about the unseen world that is very much real, and that I think is even perhaps more real than the world that we see and can, you know, touch and feel in front of us, this is one of those passages it's one of those times in the Bible when the curtain is, is rolled back and you're able to get a glimpse into something that you don't ordinarily get to see. Even in the Bible, which comes from God and, and is a book about uh, you know, a lot of spiritual truths, there aren't that many times when you get to see a glimpse of reality beyond the physical creation that we see around us. It, one thing that I find interesting, um, you know, we... We have a tendency as human beings, uh, I think, to, to think we know and experience a lot more than perhaps we actually do. Uh, one way to think about that is just think about seeing. You know, you, you can see, to me, the eye is kind of incredible. You can see an awful lot with the eye. Uh, you can, you, it's like there's so much information at once. Just thinking right now, like how many faces my eyes are processing, all of like the, the lights, the detail around us. Like there's so much that the eye is able to behold, to process, to transfer to the brain. It's, it's an incredible thing. But think about how little you can ever actually see. Think about how many barriers there are to sight. It's like, I can walk around thinking that I have no problems with my sight, but the reality is, like, all of these walls are blocking me from seeing anything beyond it. When you compare how much I can see to how much there is in the world, I I mean, I will, even if I spend my whole life traveling, I'll see, I'll barely scratch the surface 
of what there is in this whole world, and I can only see it for like a moment while I'm in the presence of it, and any sort of barrier that gets in the way blocks me from seeing anything that's behind it, and that's just talking about this world. When you consider how vast our universe is, think about how much, even with the most incredible telescopes that have ever been discovered, think about how little it is we actually see. All of humanity as a whole, you know, how little comparatively we actually see. And us as individuals, we see even less, and yet we don't usually walk around thinking about how, how limited we are in that regard. But when you start thinking about it, it's like, I think there are perhaps ways in which we and our experiences we feel like we experience so much, and we can know so much, and, and we, can, we can boast about human ingenuity and our inventions and our technology and all of that, and yet I, I tend to think perhaps all of human accomplishment, it's so small in comparison to what, for example, God could do, or for example, what there may actually be out there. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, we get a glimpse at something that people don't ordinarily get to see. And I talked about the things that we can see, and even just physically, like we're very limited in the things we can actually see. But when you factor in the idea that the Bible talks about the reality of invisible things, things that our eye cannot behold, things that, our, that human eyes will never see, but that are very real and that are all around us, I think Daniel chapter 10 is a fascinating reminder that the world is bigger even than we realize, that creation is bigger even than we realize. When you, when you read some passages like from Revelation, you get these magnificent throne room scenes. You get thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of angelic beings and, and these real beings with experiences that, that, uh, that can see the world around them, that can see and be in the very presence of God. And it's like, we don't always... We don't always factor in the reality of those types of beings, but there's a lot of them, and they're real, and they're powerful, and they truly exist, even if we can't touch, taste, smell, see, or hear them. You know, they are real beings, and in Daniel chapter 10 is one of those moments where a human gets to see more than the eye can usually behold. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to go through Daniel 10. And we're going we're gonna to try to note uh, what I think are some interesting things that are revealed about, uh, about the spiritual world from Daniel 10. Um, now, Daniel 10 is the beginning of, like, Daniel 10, 11, and 12, the last three chapters, they are a pretty good, um, like, they're, they're a unit among themselves. And so we're only going to be getting the beginning of the unit. Basically, we're going to get Daniel's experience interacting with a supernatural being. When you get to chapter 11, that's what the being pretty much has to say. That's when the being reveals things about the future to Daniel. And then in chapter 12 is where you get some interpretations and some what you ought to do about it uh, type of ideas. But we're not going to be covering all of that. Uh, it's an interesting thing to do. We're just going to be looking at his interaction uh, with a, a supernatural being as, as it appears to him. So uh, Daniel chapter 10, we'll read the first verse. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, 
but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Okay, so a lot of information comes just in that passage right there, but uh, like a lot of the chapters in Daniel, um, it begins with a heading to to give you the date. Uh, Daniel isn't written in a strict chronological fashion. The first six chapters or so are pretty chronological, and then once you get to chapter seven, it backs up to an earlier time and starts retelling the story again, only through some, some visions that Daniel has. So the first six chapters are the fun chapters that we teach to kids, and they're like the, that's where all the best stories happen. But then chapters 7 through 12, they're really interesting also, but they're, they're kind of tricky, and they, we're not used to the language that is used, and they're a lot more uh, like apocalyptic in their imagery, and, uh, and, and so sometimes, like, I've, you know, I know of people who have taught Daniel 1 through 6, and then that's their Bible class, because <laughs> once you start getting past that, it gets a little hard, uh, and that it does get hard, but, uh, but Daniel chapters uh, 7 through the rest of it, it kind of goes back in time, and so like Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 1, says, uh, in, the begin- in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so Nebuchadnezzar is like the first king in Daniel, but then uh, you end up meeting someone named Belshazzar, who is, uh, seems to be his grandson. He also has a son named Nabonidus, who's not mentioned in Daniel, but historically we know that, that he is around. Uh, but uh, Belshazzar is, is the next king mentioned, and so Daniel 7 starts in his reign, even though in the first six chapters you've already passed him and you've gone on to like the, the Persian kings. Um, but then when you get to chapter 8 in verse 1, it says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And then chapter 9 in verse 1 says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, uh, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans. Uh, and so the king of Persia at the time was a guy named Cyrus. He's who we just read about in chapter 10 in verse 1 in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In Cyrus, uh, Persia is expanding and growing. Persia has just taken over in big historical event, 539 BC, uh, Persia takes over uh, Babylon. And so it seems that Darius was put in charge of Babylon and, uh, and uh, Cyrus would still be king of all of Persia, but he, uh, Darius is, is going to be selected to be king of that area. But uh, this is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, probably third year since taking Babylon. So that puts us at about 536 six or so. A really big event happens that year in the Bible. That is uh, basically the 70 years of captivity have come to an end, and the children of Israel are allowed to return home. And so this is the, the end of Babylonian captivity, but here we have Daniel still in Babylon, uh, and he's going to receive a message uh, that is going to be um, terrifying in some ways, but also a message of, of hope, because <laughs> Think about what Daniel's been through. You know, he was raised, as, you know, in his homeland as, as a faithful Jew. Then he was taken over by the Babylonians. And then he went through, like, king after king. Some kings liked him. Some kings discarded him. Uh, one king, you know, Nebuchadnezzar tried to, uh, uh, tried to uh, you know, he tried to have all of his wise men killed, basically. And Daniel was able to, to be saved through that. Uh, the, the, his three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace. But it's like, it's been a tumultuous time for him. And then you know, out of his control, Babylon falls to Persia, and so now he has, he has like completely new overlords, and he doesn't know what they're going to do with him, and, and he ends up uh, receiving favor in their eyes, but even, even the king who likes him has to throw him into a den of lions uh, because of a promise that he made, and so like Daniel's life has been completely out of his control. Like from a young age, he was captured, he was taken to be a captive, he was taught by a pagan king, he's had different kings, and like 
He has had so little control over his life, and there's just been constant turmoil and political upheaval and all of that. And yet what you're going to find out, and it's actually a major theme through all of Daniel, but you see, even though it looks like human beings are turning this world upside down and all that, there is actually one who is in charge of it all. And there is actually one who is not thwarted by human governments and who actually is in control. And that's the God of Israel, the God that Daniel serves. And so Daniel is able to serve that God. And when he's able to see that that God actually is in charge, that in and of itself is a message of hope to a people who have had very little hope and to a people who have had very little power and to a people who have had very little control. So Daniel's an important message to people who are suffering under the hand of, of uh, evil overlords and evil governors and evil rulers. In fact, I think that's why Daniel continues to find resonance with people. It teaches the value of faithfulness to God when you find yourself living as an exile in a foreign land. As Christians, I think we are intended to see ourselves as exiles in a foreign world. We have a king who is enthroned, and he's a true king, and he has a true kingdom. But he's not in any one location on earth. Uh, he is, his kingdom is, is throughout the world, and we find ourselves, while he is our ultimate king, also ruled by these others. And trying to figure out, okay, how do I live as an exile? How do I live uh, faithfully in the world while still giving true adherence and allegiance to the true and ultimate king? Uh, we find ourselves in Daniel's position, and that happens a lot. Uh, we find ourselves where the laws and the rules and the things that are outside of our control a lot of times, uh, those are thrust upon us, and we have to figure out how to respond faithfully. And Daniel shows time and time again how Daniel and how uh, his friends, how they responded faithfully in times of, of uncertainty, especially political uncertainty. And so Daniel's a really important message, but one of the ideas that is consistent throughout it is that God's not caught off guard by what happens in the kingdoms of men. In fact, he's the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. Even when men don't honor him or recognize him as their ruler, God is the one ruling in the kingdoms of men. And that's going to be a large part of the message that this, uh, that this angel brings to, to Daniel. But uh, Daniel is there in chapter 10. Notice uh, his name is given, his other name. It says, it was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Now, that's the only time in the second half of Daniel that his name, his Babylonian name, is going to be given. And that's one of the fascinating things about Daniel. Um, in fact, if I were to say Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, not a lot of people would know who I'm talking about. But if I say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a lot of people are familiar with their story. Those are the same people. Uh, their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were changed to Babylonian names associated with Babylonian gods. Uh, Nadab, or not uh, I can't even think of their, I just said it a second ago. Um, the three that were fun, fun, fun. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I went blank on their Babylonian names. Anyway, uh, their names were changed, uh, and Daniel's was too. But Daniel, we still always call his Hebrew name, and very rarely do we ever call him Belteshazzar, which is his Babylonian pagan name. But by the way, that in and of itself is another illustration of how little control Daniel has. He goes to a new land against his will. They change his name. They change everything about him. They're like, oh, we don't want you to be named after, after the God of Israel. We want you to be named after Babylonian gods. And so they change his name. And that's the name that he has. When Daniel 10 starts off by reminding you of that name, 
It's reminding you of someone who is in exile, reminding you of someone who is distant from his homeland and who is on his own in a lot of ways, and someone who uh, has had everything about him taken over, changed, and out of his control, ruled by somebody else. Verse uh, 1 continues saying that the message was one that was true and of great conflict or, or warfare. In fact, as you look through this message, a lot of it's going to have to do with, deal with warfare, uh, war among the kings of the earth. It's going to kind of go down the line of uh, Persian and then Greek history and even uh, possibly into the Roman period. So you see a lot of different descriptions of kings rising and falling and battles and warfare and all of that stuff that will be discussed uh, in, the, in the coming chapter. What Daniel does with respect to this vision is uh, he ends up verse 2, kind of going back and telling us the story of what leads up to it. Uh, So verse 2 says, in those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor uh, did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So Daniel takes three weeks to mourn and to lament and in some ways to to fast and to pray to God. Uh, If you look back at chapter 9, chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, in the first year of his reign, uh, or sorry, look at verse 3. He says, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Daniel goes through the acts of prayer and fasting in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he goes through the act of what he calls mourning, uh, mourning for the state of Israel, mourning for uh, the condition that that his homeland and that he himself finds himself in. Uh, But he also does so with a varied form of fasting. We talked this morning about how there's fasting that can be done in different ways. Uh, one way might be, you know, complete absence of food. But here, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't completely deny himself food for three weeks, but he does say he denies himself tasty things uh, or good things, meat and wine. So it's like certain pleasurable things he, he denies himself, uh, kind of like in the first chapter, if you remember, in Daniel chapter 1. He refused to eat the king's choice food, and he chose only vegetables instead. Uh, this is Daniel uh, practicing a variation of, of a fast as he is mourning. Um, and he also, he doesn't use any ointment uh, at all in, uh, until the, the period of three weeks was completed. Uh, it was very common for people uh, in, in that environment, uh, you know, in order to protect your skin, you would put ointment on, you would put uh, like oil on or, or kind of like lotion type things, uh, but he doesn't do that. And, uh, and so he is just kind of letting himself suffer as he mourns before God uh, in imitation of this mourning and the suffering going on among his people. So as he does this, verse 4 It says, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was at the bank of the great river, that is Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded uh, with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like a flaming torch or flaming torches. His arms and feet gleamed of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a tumult. Okay, so he sees this vision of this 
incredible figure that appears before him. Um, a lot of these descriptions, you can find them other places in different uh, theophanies. A theophany is like when God appears before man, uh, and sometimes God is described like on his throne, and he's often wearing white, and then you'll, you'll get these types of descriptions. Uh, if you look at like Ezekiel chapter 1, a lot of the descriptions here are also found there. That's, uh, that is also a, a vision that Ezekiel has in Babylon uh, of the appearance of, of God coming before him. And uh, he sees like all of the majesty of the throne of God. It's an incredible scene. But here you see someone that kind of is, is, has all of those things together. He has the shining face. He has the eyes uh, of fire. He has the, the feet and, and uh, arms of bronze. He uh, has... Uh, um, these incredible descriptions, uh, the, his words are like the sound of a tumult. Uh, one thing that's interesting about that is when you read Revelation chapter 1, um, there's an image of, of Christ who appears. And when Christ appears, uh, he's given this description of like the glorified Christ. And as you read through the description, a couple of the things that are mentioned, uh, verse 13 of Revelation 1 says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. So the long white robe with the golden sash, uh, Daniel sees a long white robe with a golden belt. Um, in verse 14, it says, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So in Daniel, he sees the eyes like the torches of fire. Uh, his feet, in verse 15, were like burnished bronze. Oh, the feet in Daniel mentions them being like polished bronze. Uh, when it had been made uh, to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. You have the, the powerful voice described in, in Daniel 10. You have the powerful voice described right here. Uh, so you go through um, even his face in uh, Revelation 1. His face uh, was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, and Daniel describes the face like lightning, but it's like the very shiny face. I would imagine if you just take a quick glimpse at those two characters, uh, they're going to look pretty similar in a lot of ways. And the descriptions that are given of them are, are pretty similar. That has led some people to think that in Daniel 10, you get an image of, uh, you know, Jesus occasionally has... Uh, possible appearances at different places in the Old Testament. Uh, some have thought that this might be that type of, of uh, theophany where God reveals himself. Perhaps it's, a, it's a Jesus revealing himself. Uh, I would say I'm very hesitant to agree with that, uh, but it is interesting to note that there is a strong connection between the, the powerful beings that appear in this uh, supernatural revelation to Daniel and, uh, and the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Revelation, a lot of the imagery of Revelation comes from different places in the prophets and different places in Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah or uh, the temple or the book of Exodus. Like most of Revelation is going to come from the Old Testament somewhere. Uh, and so I think we need to be a little bit careful before we get too, uh, too confident in our assertion, oh, okay, Jesus looks like this guy from Daniel. That, way, that reason the guy from Daniel must be Jesus. We'll see in here a little bit why I'm hesitant to make that connection, but I at least think it's noteworthy to know this, how similar those, those two descriptions are. Um, when you get to verse 7 of Daniel 10, it says, Now I, Daniel, alone 
saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So Daniel's apparently with people when this appears. Daniel's able to see the being before him. The other people don't really see it. They just know something is happening, and I don't like it, and it's scary. And so they take off running, uh, and Daniel's left there alone uh, with, this, with this being before him. He says in verse 8, So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color had turned a deathly deathly pallor, and uh, I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. So, I mean, that's the same thing that happens to Ezekiel when he sees the one who sits on the throne in his vision. Like, there are a lot of things in this part of the text that are reminiscent to other passages, and a lot of the other passages that it's reminiscent with are actual uh, images of of the divine revealing himself, like falling down and passing out before uh, the presence of God, and God described in those ways. Again, I uh, I think Daniel, we need to be careful to make that strict of a connection, but something like that is happening here. Uh, Something with a lot of that imagery is happening is really powerful. Some people actually think uh, that there might be perhaps two beings described. One of them is a theophany, is an appearance of God in in a visible form that's described in the first nine verses, and then what you get after that is another being that's talking to Daniel, because it becomes pretty clear as you keep reading this being can't be God. Uh, there are some things that really would make me hesitant to say that this being is God. Um, and, and we'll see that. Some people say that there's two. I'm hesitant to say that also because the text doesn't say there's two. And so I think it's just a, a vision of an angel, but the angel is described in ways that is often reminiscent of the authority, the power of God. Maybe he's, as one speaking on God's behalf, he is the one who's going to be seen as carrying that, that look, that authority behind it. And anyway, when Daniel sees it, uh, he falls to the ground and falls asleep. But then verse 10, then behold, a hand touched me and it set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. So he gives Daniel the strength to stand up, but he can still only tremble in the presence of this being. And uh, by the way, if you ever do have a vision from God and uh, an angel comes before you and he greets you as person of high esteem, that's pretty cool. Uh, that, would be, that would be like, okay, I'm doing something right here. Uh, if God is going to describe me in those ways, or if his messenger is going to, uh, that, that is an encouraging thought. And that's what Daniel hears uh, right at the beginning of this. So that might, that might give him the courage, at least a little bit, to stand up, even though trembling uh, for fear of the one before him, but noticing also that he doesn't have need for fear, like punishment right now. He's actually held in high esteem. Um, Verse 12 says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So what does it mean by the first day that you started doing this? Remember, we talked about that morning, that fasting that he he mentioned, and he says he did it for three weeks. He's saying, so from the first day you started, we have heard you, and I've been trying to come to you. Uh, That was three weeks ago. 
So something apparently has delayed him from coming to Daniel for a three-week period. And this is where I think the story gets just absolutely fascinating. This is where you start seeing that curtain unveiled and you realize, hey, maybe there's more that goes on in the world around us than we have any clue about. You keep reading in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me, or was withstanding me, for 21 days. Oh, that's what was happening during those three weeks. He was, he, there was a prince of the kingdom of Persia that was fighting against this angel and not letting him come. By the way, one of the reasons that I'm very hesitant to say that this is God is because I don't think the prince of the kingdom of Persia could halt God for 21 days. Uh, I think if God wanted to get past him, he could get past him. Uh, I think he could do it probably quicker than that. Um, but then verse 13, he says, And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And so you have him saying, like, I was trying to come here, and I couldn't get past him for 21 days. And then Michael came, and he helped me out. And again, I don't think God would need Michael's help. Uh, and, and, but then I was able to get past him and come to you. And I'm thinking, I have never thought about the possibility of an angel trying to go somewhere where God is sending him and not being able to because the prince of the king of Persia uh, is withstanding him. So there's a couple of, of people here that we're introduced to. One is the angel who is speaking. Uh, again, we talked about his identity a little bit already. Some, some would identify him with the pre-incarnate Jesus or some theophany. Uh, I'm hesitant to do that. I think he is an angel. He might be Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel is the one who came to, to Daniel in the chapter previous to this uh, when Daniel was fasting and he came and he revealed to Daniel the vision of the 77s. And, and so it's, maybe, maybe it's him. We don't know. He's not called Gabriel in this chapter. Maybe he's just another angel that we don't really know, but I think he's a supernatural angelic being who uh, is coming. He doesn't quite seem to be the warrior that Michael is, because Michael is the, another big character. Uh, he appears a couple of times in the Bible. It is fascinating to me also when the angels that you run into are named. Uh, but Michael appears right here, and he fights with the prince of, the, of Persia, prince of the kingdom of Persia, and he allows this other angel to go escape. So he takes on the battle, this other angel is able to get by and get a message to Daniel. Um, the other times we see Michael are in Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1. It says, uh, now at that time Michael, and notice how he's described, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. He will arise. So Michael is also a great prince, and he stands guard over God's people. Um, that's fascinating. <laughs> the other time we see Michael is going to be in Jude chapter 9, or sorry, Jude chapter 1 and verse 9, where uh, he argues with Satan over the body of Moses. Um, that seems to be an allusion to a, a writing that's not in our Bible called the Assumption of Moses, uh, but there is a, a debate that takes place between Michael and Satan, and Michael himself even treats Satan with some measure of, I don't know if respect is a good word, but, but I'll say it, uh, because uh, he doesn't, you know, rail against the angelic authority of, of uh, Satan. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. He, he relies on God's authority uh, to chastise Satan. Um, and so in that, I think you get kind of a, a glimmer that it's important when you're talking about angelic beings, uh, even the wicked ones, 
to do so somewhat respectfully because they are very powerful beings and uh, we should treat them with a, a measure of, of humility, understanding uh, that we are in the presence of some very powerful uh, beings. Uh, but then the other time you see Michael is in Revelation 12 when Jesus is ascending to heaven and Satan goes after him with his army. The dragon goes after him with his army or the serpent of old goes after him and Michael comes and has a battle with him and Michael wins, and Michael casts Satan down. Michael is referred to as, as an archangel or as a, as, as a chief prince. He's one of the key rulers. And so uh, one of the characters you get is the angel bringing the message. The other one is Michael, who seems to be like a warrior angel who fights for God's army and is one of the leaders fighting for God's army and, and fights for God's people. But then the other character that I've mentioned a couple of times that we haven't really talked about is called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, the word prince is applied to both Michael and this other being. Um, we tend to think of princes as like human, you know, authorities in, in different kingdoms, and they are, but that same word can sometimes be used to describe other kinds of rulers. In fact, the Greek word that's used here uh, is the word for ruler. Uh, it's, it's a word when you see Paul saying things like, your fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities. By the way, principality is a word that, uh, that comes from this idea of the word prince. Um, but the rulers, the principalities, the powers the, of darkness in the heavenly places, those types of words uh, are the words that would describe these types of beings right here. And so he's the prince of Persia, but he seems to be like an angel or an angelic type of supernatural being who is over Persia. So who would be the, the one over Israel? Well, I'm guessing Michael, because that's what it said in chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, he stands guard over the sons of your people. And so one thing that you get a glimpse of is it seems that there are angels who very well may have territories on earth, and that perhaps as those territories wage war with one another, which sometimes happens, there's actually unseen spiritual battles taking place as well. Sometimes uh, the things that we think are the struggles we have on earth aren't just physical struggles on earth, but there are actually very real spiritual battles that are taking place as well. And sometimes we might have no idea that those spiritual battles are taking place. We aren't, we aren't able to see them. We aren't able to see like the effects of them, but they are there and they're very real. In fact, as you keep reading through this passage, um, one thing that you'll see when you get to verse 20 this is when the angel's about to go back. And he says, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. And I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So what happens is Persia eventually falls to the Greeks and the Greeks become the ruling power. And what he's saying is, look, I gotta go get back to this fight with the prince of Persia. And then I know the prince of Greece, he's coming next. That's actually part of the, the message that he gives to Daniel in chapter 11 about the fall of, of uh, the Persians and the rise of the Greeks. Chapter eight also had that same uh, image. It was of a, of a goat and, and a ram and one hits the other one and that was the Persians falling to the Greeks. Like that's a big story here. And you come to find out that's not just a battle between nations. There are actually spiritual battles taking place that are uh, representative or, or that are perhaps the ultimate battle. And what we see on earth is only the, the shadow of the real battle that's taking place. But this passage, along with other passages, it reminds me that the world we see and the eyes that we 
put so much trust in, are quite limited in grasping what is actually really there. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament comes from 2 Kings 6, and it's Elisha. And uh, Elisha is finds himself in a pickle because the king of Aram is uh, trying to, you know, pick battles with Israel. But Elisha is a prophet and he knows everything that the king of Aram is planning even before he comes to the plans. And he tells that to Israel. So Israel's prepared for everything the king of Aram tries to do. So the king of Aram is thinking, okay, there are things that I tell my secret council of advisors that Israel knows about before I ever do it. So one of you guys has to be a traitor. One of you guys is, is a rat in my organization, and you're going to Israel, and you're, you're, you're a spy, you know, you're a double agent, whatever. And so he is furious with his own people, and they explain to him, none of us are actually with Israel. We're all loyal to you, but Israel has a prophet, and he tells the king everything that you're thinking about, even in your bedchamber. Like, he knows your thoughts. And so then the king thinks, well, I need to stop attacking Israel, and I need to go attack this prophet. So he brings his armies to the city where Elisha is, and he surrounds the city. And Elisha is there in a the house, and he has a servant with him. A servant wakes up one morning, goes outside, and his jaw drops to the floor as he recognizes an entire army has surrounded them. And he runs in and he tells Elisha, we're doomed, you know, what are we going to do? And Elisha says the coolest thing. Elisha says to him, uh, he, he prays to God uh, to open his eyes, and he explains to the man that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, if I'm the servant, I'm thinking, all right, you got an army versus two. I disagree. You know, those who are with them are clearly more than those who are with us. And Elisha asks God to open his eyes, and then his eyes are opened. And he sees that army, sure, but then he sees the curtain unveiled, and he's able to see the reality of the spiritual battle taking place, and he sees the mountains surrounded that army full of chariots of fire with the army of the Lord. Now, if you didn't have your eyes opened, all you would see is you would just think a king is going to kill Elisha, like it's just a little battle between some people in, in, a, in a small part of the world there. But when your eyes are opened, all of a sudden you see that there's a whole lot more taking place there than we ever noticed. You see that happen. Uh, that's, that's another one of those brief moments where the curtain's pulled back and you're able to see more than you realize was there. Daniel chapter 10, you begin to realize these, these countries and these, these nations, there are spiritual battles taking place that we might see as a conflict between Ukraine and Russia, or we might see as some conflicts, but perhaps there's actually more there taking place that we can't see than there is that we actually can see. I think perhaps in our lives, it's important to remember that some of the battles that we face, Paul writes very clearly that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can defend ourselves against the arrows of the devil because our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and the powers of darkness in the heavenly places. It's like there are real spiritual battles taking place that we might not be able to see. I wonder what would happen if the curtain was open before our eyes and we could see the spiritual reality of God's full creation all around us. I wonder how that would change things. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, maybe not until heaven and earth, uh, uh, you know, become one and, and, uh, and we, we enter the resurrection and we're able to see more than we ever thought possible. But at this point, I think it's important for us to know that uh, when Daniel went to pray and fast, there was a lot that took place because of that. 
that got the gods, God's ears were listening. God sent his messengers to answer prayers. Evil forces and evil princes tried to fight against them. It took three weeks for the messenger to get past. A battle had to take place, but he eventually made his way to Daniel. And Daniel had, during those three weeks, no clue any of that was happening. It's a reminder to me that sometimes when I'm praying, or next week when we have our day of prayer and fasting, we have no idea what is going to happen as a result of that. We have no idea if we'll ever see the results of that. But I have a strong feeling that there will be real changes taking place, whether seen or unseen, in the world all around us. Maybe it's just the type of thing that's behind uh, our, you know, what our eyes are actually able to, to perceive. Um, but there is a very real world beyond what we see that God has created that's active, that has real participants, where there's real battles, where there really are spiritual beings. And uh, I think it's important for us to remember also that sometimes when we worship things that are not God, when we give our allegiance to things that are not God, there very well may be um, sport forces of wickedness behind those things that accept that as their own. Uh, when people worshipped the emperor in Persia, I doubt it was just the emperor receiving that worship, but I bet the prince of Persia kind of liked it. Uh, when people give their loyalty and their allegiance and their worship to things of this earth, there very well may be spiritual beings behind it, accepting that worship for themselves, which is why we are called, called to be people who give worship only to the God of Israel, only uh, to Jesus, only to uh, the Creator, and not to these created beings. Um, but anyway, I think Daniel, 7, Daniel 10 is fascinating. Uh, there's a lot more that you can, you can you know, go through as you go through that chapter, but those are some of the things that pop into my mind as, as I read it, uh, and I thought uh, it, was, it was relevant with the lesson this morning and then with the Bible class that we had uh, this morning. Um, so some of these ideas kind of emerged. But if there is anyone here tonight, uh, if you would like uh, the prayers of the church or if anyone would like to become a Christian, uh, please let that be known. We pray that you would come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing. <laughs>